Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, guys. Good to see you this morning. We are in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in verses 32 through 42 today. Um, If you would like a Bible, you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you. Or if you'd like a second Bible, um, that is our gift to you. Well, last Sunday, we learned how the 12 disciples, how they all had a bad case of the normals. What do we mean by that? Well, these men are, they're proud at times, just like you and me. All right, they let their egos make decisions. They let fear control their emotions, just like you and me. We learn that many of them, they don't think before they open their mouth. Have you guys ever wondered, like, if Peter's mouth is is shaped like his foot? You ever wondered that? (laughs) These men have tempers, they have agendas, they have flaws, just like you and me. In other words, they have a bad case of the normals, just like you and me. Are we learning through Mark's gospel here that the 12 disciples, they represent us as Jesus' disciples today? Have you noticed that we all make the same mistakes they did? I mean, because it's pretty easy for us to read these narratives and think to ourselves, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have thought that. And then, what a coincidence, right? Just days or even hours later, the Lord allows us to prove whether what we're, what we're, if we're going to do that in our own life. Last week, we also looked at how both Old Testament Scripture And then Jesus predicted the disciples' betrayal. We focused in on that. Jesus quoted the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And then uh, Jesus also gave the disciples a detailed outline of how they would betray him. And not one of the disciples listened to him. Not one. They all said, Jesus, this is not going to happen. No way. They all pounded their chests and they said they would rather die than betray Jesus. A couple key points from last week. Number one, the disciples didn't know how weak they truly were, and nor do we. We don't know how truly weak we are until we're tested. We're tried. We're tempted. And number two, we talked about how your behavior reveals what you truly believe about God, regardless of what you say. And we've been talking about that a lot on Wednesday nights with our Bible study. So in other words, our actions speak louder than words. Finally, we also learn the difference between temporary fear and then living in a chronic state of fear. And that's all a review from last Sunday. If you missed that message, it is on our website. 
at riverbible.org. Well, today we're going to come to a section of scripture that is, I don't know, I, it really, this is impossible for me to, to say with words, to describe, to, to introduce what the Lord's going to teach us today. I mean, it is utterly fascinating and yet completely terrifying at the same time. So let, let me try. Um, four things here. First, we're going to learn about Jesus's humanity and just really, truly how human Jesus is. Secondly, we're going to take a look at what it takes to be in the center of God's will and how painful it is to stay there. Thirdly, we're going to look at temptation, how Jesus persevered through temptation, how the disciples failed. And then we're also going to witness the lack of prayer in the disciples' lives and the prayer life of Jesus. Today's narrative, it, it takes place during the middle, middle of the night. This is um, Thursday night. It becomes early Friday morning. So really, we're looking between 12 midnight to 2 a.m. That's where this narrative takes place. Now, keep in mind, this is Passion Week. It's been a very, very long week for everyone. They are utterly exhausted. Why is that important? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 and following. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And he went a little farther and he fell to the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all, all things are possible. They're possible for you, so take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake just one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And once again, he went away and prayed and he said the same thing. And again, he came and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Father in heaven, the psalmist writes, teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes and I will always keep them. Father, we pray for the meaning of this text today, that you will meet us right where we are and reveal your, your glorious hope and comfort that comes from, uh, from your blood and from the cross. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 32. Then when they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, you guys sit here while I pray. 
So the name Gethsemane, it means press of oils or olive press. So this was a real garden in a real physical location that grew olives. The garden was most likely a, a private orchard that was probably owned by a wealthy follower of Jesus. So in all probability, the garden was surrounded by a fence or a wall. It, it probably had a gate with the entrance there. And this was the typical setup for gardens near the city of Jerusalem because inside the city, there was no room for gardens. So what they had to do is they had to plant things outside uh, the city walls there for personal use. This is where they, they grew things for, uh, for sale as well. So all that to say this, Gethsemane is just a few miles away from the city of Jerusalem. So it was probably a nice secluded area for the disciples, uh, for Jesus to be, to be alone with them. Luke's gospel says this. He says, Jesus went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. So Gethsemane was a favorite spot by Jesus and the disciples. Evidently, they spent a lot of time there. In verse 33, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. So Jesus leaves the eight disciples at the, at the gate of the garden. Remember, Judas has already left, so there's eight. Why does he do this? Well, two thoughts. Number one, he knows he's going to pray, so he probably doesn't want to be interrupted. And number two, possibly even for protection. He knows he's going to be arrested that night. So Jesus now leaves the eight there. He takes his leadership team with him. So we got Peter, James, and John. James and John being the sons of thunder. These are the same three men who witnessed Jesus' glory and his deity in the transfiguration. So back to verse 33, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. So as Jesus is walking with Peter, James, and John, something begins to happen to Jesus that he's never experienced before. He becomes deeply distressed. The, the picture here is that Jesus becomes astonished at his own emotions Jesus himself is surprised by the level of terror that he undergoes. The text says troubled. Jesus, is, he's full of heaviness. The suffering that he endures is, is heavy. It's a pressure. He's never known this before. There's also a picture here that Jesus is homesick. He's ready to go home. He, he wants to be with his father. Jesus just longs to, to go back home in heaven. Now, pause for a second. How is all of this possible? I mean, Jesus is the son of God, meaning he's divine, right? And so how is Jesus as a divine being, how is he astonished? How is he surprised at his own emotions? That's right. Because he's human. He is the son of man as well. He's the son of God and he is the son of man. So he is truly a human being, and we get to see how human he is in this text. And here's the majesty in, in all of this. God, almighty God, in the form of a man, experienced real emotions, just like you and me. Uh, how do we know this? Because scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No. But one who has been tempted in every way as we are. And yet he's without sin. In fact, we're getting ready to see that Jesus experienced these emotions and these temptations at a greater level than, than any of us ever will. Jesus is, he really is preparing to undergo a strain and a pressure and a tension of cosmic proportions here. Jesus is going to pre-live the cross before the cross. I mentioned that Jesus is astonished at his emotions. What do you think he's astonished about? Was it because Israel rejected him and their Messiah as their Messiah, as their Savior? Was it Judas's betrayal? Is it the fact that in just a few minutes, the rest of his disciples are all going to desert him? They're going to leave him isolated. They're going to leave him alone. They're just going to forsake him. Is it the reality of how the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, they're going to, how they're going to teach him or, or, or treat him? Or maybe it's, it's the thought of, of enduring the most painful death a human being can ever experience. I mean, I think all of those contributed to that astonishment, but this distress, this trouble, this agony goes beyond all these worldly things. Why is that? Because Jesus would soon become the object of sin. Jesus would bear, he would endure, he would undergo God the Father's divine wrath on human sin. If you would, turn your Bibles to the right. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For you note takers, I want to give you three notes here out of this, out of this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, circle that word he, that's God the Father. That's the Father. He made the one who, so circle the word who, that's Jesus. So God the Father made the one, that's Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin. So circle that second word sin there and write down offering. So it should read this way. The Father made the one, that's Jesus, who did not know sin to be a sin offering for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. When we write that word offering, offering in there, that text makes a whole lot more sense. He made the one who did not know sin to be a sin offering. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And because Jesus is the sin offering... For the first time in all, all of eternity, Jesus would experience alienation and isolation and detachment from the Father. Why is that? The prophet Habakkuk says that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
And because of the father's fury that will soon be unleashed on Jesus, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, he says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. You guys stay here and stay awake. So in other words, Jesus tells these men, it feels like I'm getting ready to die. Now let those words sink in. Jesus says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Is Jesus hyperbolic? Is this a time where Jesus is going to launch into a parable? No. No. Jesus' sorrow is so powerful that his human frame is in danger of collapsing. The, the wave of terror that flooded Jesus' mind is so intense, it nearly kills him. Literally kills him. Now, I want you to think about that. That God himself in human form, he nearly dies at the overwhelming reality that as an innocent man is moments away from paying the price for your sin. Dear friends, this reveals the cost of sin. Sin, this, this thing that we take so lightly every day. And the whole scene, it really reveals a devastating agony that is beyond human comprehension. It, we can't grasp this. Nothing in all of Scripture compares to Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. The anguish that Abraham felt preparing to, to sacrifice his son that event only points to Jesus living in the, inside this moment right now. The grief that King David endured at the death of his son Absalom doesn't even come close. Nor do the laments in the book of Psalms or lamentations, even when Satan tested Jesus for 40 days, does not compare to the hours that are spent here in Gethsemane. So Jesus continues... He says, remain here and stay awake. In other words, guys, be vigilant, be watchful, be on the lookout. Notice here that Jesus doesn't ask them to pray for him at this moment. That should have been a given. They should have kept watch. Keeping watch is a duty. It's a commitment. It's a responsibility of our faith. We see this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 42. But what were they watching for? Just as the Jews watched how God the Father delivered them from the Egyptians, Peter, James, and John, they were to watch God deliver humanity from eternal punishment in a very real place called hell. These three men saw, saw Jesus in his glory at the transfiguration. Now they're going to see him suffer in his humiliation. Peter, James, and John were to, to now share in his agony. So Jesus, verse 35, he, he went on a little farther. He fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass. Notice what Jesus does with this kind of terror, with this kind of despair. It drives him to prayer. So a key point from last week is, is your behavior reveals what you truly believe about God. And we see what Jesus truly believes about God the Father. You, you know, guys, when we find ourselves amid a tragic situation, 
we've got two options. Number one, we can blame God and we can run away from him. We can choose to get mad and and we can start interrogating God and, and asking him all the why questions. Why me, God? Why are you picking on me? Or two, we can choose to run into the arms of God and we can cling to him and we can believe in his promises. And we see what Jesus chose here in verse 35. He falls to the ground. Now notice Jesus' body language here. Jesus, his physical prostration, it reveals the intensity of his agony. His body collapses in total exhaustion and submission. So from the other Gospels, we piece this together, that he first went to his knees. Luke's Gospel tells us that. And as Jesus is praying on his knees, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying, and then he falls to his face. Matthew tells us that. Can you picture that? The one who created the dirt now has his face in the dirt. I mean, this is an excellent position for you and I because we're sinners. It's interesting that the son of man lay prostrate with his face in the ground. Jews normally prayed with their faces uplifted and and their their, their hands raised to heaven kind of like this. Or maybe they would pray like this. But not Jesus. Not this time. So what did Jesus pray? What's he praying with his face in the dirt? Verse 35, he, he prayed that if it were possible, is it possible? Jesus is praying for the Father to change his divine plan. Jesus is not questioning God's power, but he is petitioning the plan. Jesus, he's not having second thoughts. He's not going to quit. He's simply asking the Father, if there is another way to save sinners apart from the cross, he wants to go that route. Secondly, notice here as Jesus makes his petitions, the picture here is that Jesus is not praying silently. He's lamenting loudly. Jesus is praying so loud that Peter, James, and John can hear him. How do we know this? Hebrews 5, 7, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. So that brings us to our first key point this morning. Jesus expressed his true feelings to those closest to him. Jesus expressed his true feelings to those closest to him. Jesus doesn't bottle up his true feelings. He's not going to be polite and he's not going to act religious, right? Everything is not fine at this moment. He tells God the Father, he tells Peter, James, and John what's on his heart. Now let me ask you this. Why does Jesus, who's, he's known the Father's plan all along. He's known the way of the cross. Now why does he cringe before it? Because Jesus is experiencing, and and this is completely insane, God himself is coming to terms for the very first time, the the reality of what it truly means to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because it's one thing to stand before a, a holy, holy, holy God for your own sin. 
Now, can you imagine what it looks like to stand before God and answer for every sin of every evil of every human being who ever walked the planet? So paying for your sin is why Jesus cringes at this moment. Back to verse 35, he says, the, I want this hour to pass from me. The hour, it, re, it refers to Jesus' suffering. No, no one chooses to suffer. And it's the same with Jesus. He doesn't want to go through this. Now, by reading through the Gospels, we've noticed several times that Jesus has said, my hour, my time has not yet come. Well, the hour has come. Jesus has been preparing his whole life for this hour, this moment right now. But the gross reality is really your sin is even greater than he realized. It's amazing, isn't it? The sorrow and the grief that Jesus experienced in the garden, it just defies our, our comprehension because this is a supernatural struggle. So Jesus says, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, I can promise you that Jesus did not pray that prayer as fast as I read it. Jesus says, Abba, Father. Jesus uses the Aramaic and the Greek terms together. Why would he do that? Is this something that, that he planned on doing? No, 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 no. It's, it's the stress of the moment. Jesus loses his train of thought, and, and since he knows multiple language, he starts to stumble around a little bit in his prayers. He's getting his words mixed up. Remember that Jesus is excessively affected. He is impacted by his emotion. He's on the verge of death and he starts to pray and he says, uh, Abba, uh, Father. Uh. Abba was a standard family term that the Jews used, but they only used it in the immediate family. Jews didn't use this to refer to God the Father because they considered it disrespectful most of us have, have heard this term, Abba, that it means daddy. Um, that's true in a sense, but just know that there's nothing childish in this term at all. It does represent a very respectful and, and healthy intimacy from, from son to father. So back to verse 36, he says, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So is Jesus praying something contrary to the Father's will? Is Jesus at this moment caving into the pressure? Is he on the verge of disobedience? No, Jesus is truly God. He is truly man. And as a man, he had a human will, which means that he temporarily had limited divine knowledge. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians 2, 6. Jesus who existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So instead, he emptied himself. So in other words, he temporarily emptied himself of divine sovereign knowledge. And he, he assumed the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what we see here in this text is, is the human interaction between a perfect human heart, really the heart of a son, and the, and the divine will of the Father. Verse 36, he says, all things are possible for you. So something is happening that, that Mark, our gospel writer here, doesn't really overly mention. The reason Jesus is overcome with emotions is that Satan is tempting him. This is a full-blown supernatural assault from the gates of hell on Jesus as the Son of Man at this moment. So just as we saw three waves of temptation uh, between Satan and Jesus in the wilderness, we're going to see three more waves of temptation here in the garden. Please know that it's not Satan's wish that Jesus dies via crucifixion. That is not Satan's plan at all. Remember what Jesus said to Peter when, when uh, Jesus first revealed the plan of the cross? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan wants Jesus dead, but not via the cross. Satan's plan is to derail the cross. And if Satan succeeds at this point, Jesus fails, guys, and then no one's going to heaven. Period, the end. Verse 36, continuing now, Jesus says, I want you to take this cup away from me. In the Old Testament, the cup was used as a metaphor for the wrath of God. And if, if Jesus were to look into a physical cup, he would see every sin, every evil, every ambition, every intention, every wicked desire that you and I have had or will ever have. So in other words, the analogy is that the, this cup is full of sin. And secondly, because this cup is full of sin, Jesus also sees God's wrath that accompanies that sin. So make no doubt about it. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. God doesn't wink at sin and the sinner will be judged. He doesn't throw the sin in hell. He throws the sinner in hell. And then there's the realization that he, that Jesus, the holy, sinless, innocent son of man, he's got to now identify himself with sinners. And by doing so, Jesus becomes the object upon which the God, God the Father is going to unleash his holy wrath. And Jesus just says, Daddy, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Verse 36, and then he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus says, yes, take it away, Lord. I don't want to do this, but I will. I will do it. So even though Jesus asked God the Father to take away the cross, Jesus also knew that the Father never acts contrary to his character, his purpose, or his word. He says, nevertheless, so this indicates the distinction here between Jesus's request to the father and also his submission to the father. And he goes on, he says, what you will, I want what you, what you want, Lord. It, re it really reveals the heart of Jesus's prayer here. He says, I want you, I want what you want, no matter the cost to me. That brings us to key point number two. Experiencing God includes experiencing his suffering. 
Experiencing God includes experiencing his suffering, not yours, his. That's why Paul writes this. This is amazing. Colossians 1.24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the body. Guys, anything worth having is worth suffering for, especially when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you, are you sleeping? Couldn't you guys stay awake for one hour? So as Jesus is going through the the most dire circumstances anyone will ever experience. Jesus, think about this, Jesus stops praying and he goes and he checks on his disciples. At this hour, at this moment, Jesus is concerned about other people. Wow. Jesus calls Peter by his old name because he's acting like his old self. He's not acting like the rock. Peter was probably singled out here because just a few hours earlier, he, he, you know, he was running his mouth with some checks that he just can't cash. <laughs> Peter's good at that, right? We're all pretty good at that. Verse 37, he says, Simon, are you, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? So this is a rhetorical question. Peter has no excuse Verse 38, Jesus says, I want you to stay awake. I need you guys to pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So in other words, Peter, quit trying to live your life on your own. You can't do anything by yourself. Jesus gives two commands here. He says, stay awake. So in other words, you guys be vigilant, be on the lookout. Don't be naive. Don't be naive about this. This is spiritual warfare. This, this stuff is real, even though you can't see it. Secondly, he says, pray. Why prayer? So that you won't be tempted. To enter into temptation, it means to give into it, right? To, to relinquish, to surrender into that temptation. Key point number three, and this is so important for today. In times of great stress, you are most vulnerable to temptation. In times of great stress, guys, you are most vulnerable to temptation. So how do you, how do you overcome temptation? You keep watch, you stay awake, you live in reality, and then you pray. You bring that reality before a holy God and you lay your the reality that you're going through at the foot of the cross. The purpose of the prayer is so that you can be victorious over the temptation. Remember the Lord's prayer? He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So prayer allows us to identify the temptation. And it also, God gives us the strength to overcome the temptation. Verse 38, Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's like Jesus is giving them the answer to his own question in verse 37. He says, why are you guys sleeping? Oh, you're sleeping because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. The spirit is not a reference to the Holy Spirit here. It's a reference to their own human spirits. 
Verse 39, once again, he went and he prayed, saying the same thing. So we learn a vital characteristic here in verse 39, and that is persistence. Some people believe you only need to ask God one time, you know, because you don't want to bother God. You don't want to badger God. But we can't miss the fact, guys, that Jesus prayed for the same thing over and over and over again in this passage. This is not unique. The Apostle Paul, he followed Jesus' lead. Paul told the Corinthians that he prayed three times for God to remove his thorn in the flesh. And it was never removed. God said no to Paul and to Paul's prayer. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in, in your weakness. And that leads to something very significant. Persisting in prayer does not change God's mind, but persistent prayer eventually changes ours. We even see this here in, in Jesus' prayer. In his first prayer, Jesus asked that this hour might pass from him. Jesus makes it clear. He says, I don't want to bear the cross, Father. I don't want to do this. But Matthew's gospel gives us more insight here. He says a second time he went away, he prayed, and this is his prayer. He says, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, unless I go through this, unless I do this, your will be done. So what happened between Jesus' first prayer and his second prayer? Jesus realizes that God said no to his first prayer. Jesus must endure the cross. He doesn't want to do that. But Jesus also accepts the fact that God the Father said no. So notice what Jesus says next. He says, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus doesn't get mad at the Father. He chooses to trust him. Jesus is now asking for the strength to complete it, to complete the Father's will. Verse 40, again, he came and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open, and they did not know what to say. So Jesus gets up from praying once again. He checks on the disciples in verse 40. They're not praying. They're sleeping. Look at this. Peter's even speechless. He doesn't know what to say. And since no one is there to comfort Jesus, no one is there to pray for Jesus, what happens next is absolutely supernatural. We learn about it by turning to the Gospel of Luke. Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43. An angel of heaven appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. So, guys, if this, this is supernatural. If this angel doesn't show up, Jesus would have died. Because his disciples are not helping. They're sleeping. Verse, verse 44 being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, so Jesus is strengthened. He now prays more fervently. His sweat becomes like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping, exhausted from grief. So why are the disciples exhausted? Are they, are they exhausted from the big Passover meal they just had a few hours earlier? Are they, are they tired because it's so late? Is it because they're now hiking in the middle of the night? Or maybe it's a combination of everything. 
No, scripture tells us that it's because of grief. That's why they're exhausted. Grief exhausts us, doesn't it? That's why grief makes us depressed. Depression makes us want to check out from the reality of life and just sleep the pain away. And that's what's going on here. The the disciples are so grieved that the past three years with Jesus, everything is falling apart. They can't believe this is happening. Verse 41, he came a third time and he said to them, are you guys still sleeping? You still resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is a tough verse. The English translation of this verse is really simply a guess of what's going on in the Greek. The big picture is this. Jesus is exasperated. He he walks up to the guys, he sees them sleeping, and he's like, man, what's the use? That's the picture. Are you guys going to sleep all night on me? He says the the time has come or the, the hour has come. So this long-expected hour of crisis, it has arrived. Basically, it's go time. But here's the good news. Any temptation to avoid the cross is now gone. Jesus passed the test. The hours of sleep for the disciples, the hours of prayer for Jesus, they both have ended. It's now time to embrace this hour that will complete God's plan for eternal salvation for sinners. So Jesus says in verse 42, he says, get up, let's go. Look, guys, see, my betrayer is coming. Notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying, get up, let's get out of here. Everybody run for your life. Every man for himself. He's not saying that at all. He says, get up, it's time to lead. We're going to walk right through this thing. He says, see, you guys look, they can physically see this mob coming to arrest Jesus. You know, there is so much to take away from today's passage because really, and I know that's a lot, but really we're just scratching the surface here this morning. We learned about Jesus's humanity. We learned about how truly, how truly human Jesus is. We saw the testing. We saw the pain, the overwhelming emotion. What it takes to remain in the center of of God's will. And then we also see two vivid examples of, of prayer. Number one, what happens when you don't pray? And number two, what happens when God says no to your prayers? And prayer is, that's where I want to close today. If you're a child of God, you will experience your own Gethsemane. Today's text teaches us a very, very important lesson. Key point number four, God says no to prayers. And when God says no, we think something's wrong. Uh, Am I lacking faith? Am I doing something wrong? Dear friends, did Jesus lack faith? Hmm. And yet God said no. Interesting. Key point number five, constant 
repetitious prayer, it doesn't deliver us from Gethsemane, but through Gethsemane. Constant, repetitious prayer doesn't deliver us from Gethsemane, but through it. Nobody's getting out of here unscarred. When you feel the most rejected by God and it seems like he is so far away and he doesn't care about you, he doesn't care about your situations, dear friends, I would say this is probably where you are in the middle, the center of his nail-scarred hand. He's got you right where he wants you. Key point number six, regardless of how you feel, God proved his love for you on the cross. No matter how you feel, God proved his love for you on the cross. Whenever you start doubting that, run to the foot of the cross. You may not understand God, but you can still trust God. But you will never trust God unless you pray. Because there's a severe reprimand here. There's a severe rebuke by Jesus that comes from today's lesson. If we are not living a life of dependent prayer, if we don't have, if we don't choose a regular time of daily prayer, dear friend, that's called sin. Wait a second. How is refusing to pray, how is that sin? Well, You can't love someone when you refuse to spend time with them. And then secondly, a person who refuses to pray really is breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. So in other words, you're you're not in the game, and, and this is not a game at all, is it? This is a very real spiritual battlefield. And as I mentioned last week, this battlefield, it's only going to become more bloody as time goes on, because life as we know it, it's about to become more difficult. And then on top of that, some of you guys are going through things right now that you would have never picked for yourself. But just as the Father chose Gethsemane for Jesus, God has also chosen this Gethsemane for you. And there's no way around it. You must go through it. It doesn't matter what the it is. It doesn't matter if it's health or kids or grandkids or finances or even death of a spouse. Please please remember what Gethsemane is. Gethsemane Gethsemane, it's the means, it's the mode to which God is driving you to your knees to pray. Sometimes your Gethsemane takes days or weeks, years. Uh Uh-oh, even decades. And sometimes your Gethsemane goes back to back, and sometimes you've got overlapping things going on, right? So, dear friends, your Gethsemane is an invitation for you to experience God in a way that is not possible through any other avenue. Please don't waste your Gethsemane. Don't make the mistakes the disciples made. Don't go this alone. Don't choose to sleep through it. Don't numb the pain. 
Don't reach out to pornography or drugs or alcohol or work or religion. Go to him. So I want to invite you to do something new. As the corporate body of, of River Bible Church, we have been praying for the past couple years on a weekly basis. And I, I want to formally invite you to join us in that prayer. Uh, we meet every Wednesday for one hour from 12 to 1. Um, and I'm inviting you to meet with us here at the church, Pastor Brian and I, as we pray. And if you're if you can't make it physically here, you can join us on Zoom. No problem there. If you work, bring your lunch. Eat lunch on Zoom. I don't care. What's the old saying? A prayerless church is a powerless church. So I, I want to make sure that you're invited to that, that you know that. And guys, we need you. We need you. You know, um, I mentioned last Sunday, it's very clear that the world is under God's judgment right now. And, and we're going to start feeling those repercussions. And this is all going to start happening on top of all of your personal Gethsemanes. And when these repercussions, when they start happening here in the Verde Valley, people are going to start freaking out more than they already are. And when these place, when these people have nowhere else to go, they've exhausted all of their human effort, they're going to see those three crosses out on top of that hill. And they're going to walk through that door. And they're going to see a group of people a group of flawed, imperfect people who are not terrified of what's going on in the world. Because our hope is in that cross, right? So we have to be ready for what God is doing in the Verde Valley as well. So that's my plea to you to join us every Wednesday from 12 to 1. All right, I'm going to close us in prayer out of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. And what I would like you to do is as you hear me read this prayer from Scripture, I want you to process these words through your own personal Gethsemane. Father in heaven, we choose to trust in you with all of our hearts. And we're not going to rely on our own understanding. In all of our ways, we choose to know you, and you will make our paths straight. We are not going to be wise in our own eyes. We will fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And thank you, Father, that this will be a healing for our bodies and strengthening for our bones. Father, we choose not to despise your instruction we do not loathe your discipline because you've taught us that, that you discipline the one, the ones that you love, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus' Gethsemane, and thank you for loving us enough to experience our own. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.